Recovery On Air, the official podcast of Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation. Candid discussion about addiction and recovery with the people who have lived it, along with input from experts on the journey from struggle to triumph. Laugh, cry, and be inspired. And now, your host for Recovery On Air, Greg Halverson. Good morning and welcome to Recovery On Air, the show in which we work to break the stigma of addiction by talking about it. I'm your host for today, and I'm here with uh, David Cook. Welcome, man. Hey, thanks, Greg. Good glad, to have you. Glad, glad to be here, man. Glad to have you. It's been a while since we've talked and seen each other. We saw each other uh, often for a couple of years there, and uh, and uh, you know, you go do your thing, and I go do my thing, and. I'm fishing, you're riding bikes. That's it, man. And, and here we are eight years later, and we're finally <laughs> catching up again. So, um, you know, it's, it's funny because this is only, this is my second time doing this, right? I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the driver's seat now, and I started Googling all these, hey, what are the questions that you ask people on a podcast? Well, that's not a really good thing to do because they're so different. Every podcast is so different. How do you really come up with the 50 greatest questions? So I only have five, and we're going to do those later on at the end. And you're going to be the first recipient of my five questions I'm going to ask everyone. So uh, so we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on. But um, um, like, let's see here. Where do we start? Um, 100 Petals. 100 pedals. So I know there's a starting point, and it wasn't in Phoenix, Arizona. No. Well, kind of yes and kind of no. Run, run us through the journey of how you ended up in, in Phoenix. Oh, well, Phoenix, well, Just, the, how I ended up in Phoenix is really easy. You know, one winter, two minutes in Detroit, Michigan. But um, <laughs> um, I think the 100 pedal story, you are correct, started in, in Detroit. Um, my, uh, my third, my youngest child, my, which is my second son, um, uh, didn't move to Arizona when I moved to Arizona in 2007 and, um, he stayed in Detroit and it turned out that, uh, he developed a, uh, heroin addiction and we didn't know, uh, for, actually it was something that was, had been going on under, beneath our noses for probably a year or so. We didn't know we moved to Arizona, did our thing, left him behind and, then one day we got the got the call that most parents don't like to get and find out that my son's in jail because he stole some stuff and got in trouble and everything became real at that point in time and that's when uh, basically the journey of being a parent with a child with a substance use issue uh, um, jumped into our family and then and then he came out here. I dragged him out. You, here. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. He didn't. He didn't just voluntarily no. go. Oh, well, maybe a change would be good. No, Dad decided <laughs> a change had to happen. It's funny how that happens because you know, talk about ignorance. Um, and I had no idea what I was dealing with. But the minute I got that call, I jumped on a plane, flew to Detroit, literally met my son as he's walking out of the courthouse, and like, "What are you doing here?" I said, "I'm here to rescue you." Yeah, right. You know, that's that's not quite how it works. But at that point in time, I thought that was the story, and. Um, so anyway, what we ended up doing was uh, I, I worked with his PO officer and we went back in front of the judge and we renegotiated his his uh, uh, legal terms. Uh, he had to stay in a 30 day treatment program in Michigan and then they were going to would allow him to serve his um, probation here in Arizona. So I made him move here and he was not happy and <laughs> told me all the reasons why it stunk and all that other stuff. But that's how he ended up in Arizona very much involuntarily. So. The rescue didn't work. 
No, he was here. He was here. Uh, he I'm was gonna, here. The, I'm going to fix you. That you yeah. mean that to listen to your dad? Come no, on. it was a uh, you know a month of okay, good. Now that now that mom and dad have him, we can love him to recovery. We can help him out and all that stuff. And um, about a month after he got here, he disappeared one afternoon and didn't come home till didn't come home that night and stuff. And it's like I wonder where he is. And so I get a phone call and the guy says, you want to know where your son is? I said, yeah. He said, well, this is Bob from Bob's Bail Bonds or whatever, you know, <laughs> he's in jail. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> and and here we go. Um, and, and yeah, you, you know, like when you and I are sitting here smiling at it because it's such a familiar story. Um, it, it's a sad story, but it's very familiar. And, you know, in jump ahead, you know, look ahead, you know, 12 years from that, that point, how much I've learned, how much my son has learned, how much I've learned through Crossroads and you guys, you know, it's, it's funny, but at the same time, it's very real. Oh yeah. So for, for, for all the other parents out there and, and, you know, there's so many different aspects of, of addiction and alcoholism and everything else for the people who um, are the innocent bystanders <laughs> who who have these great intentions, and they are they're good intentions because you never stop being a parent, mm-hmm. and no matter how bad it is, you're going to love your child, and uh, and so you know obviously you go back to Detroit, you're going to fix him, come out, we're going to love you, we're going to show you, you know you can do this. Um, rah, rah, rah. Right. And, and it, and it, and immediately it doesn't work out. You know, when did you have, did you have a moment? Did you have some point? Did you have to have a breaking point? Did it have to drag you down to where you finally said, man, Oh yeah, this my my this ain't. <laughs> well, that was well. What we really just, first of all, I don't know anything about heroin what we, addiction. <laughs> what we really talked about just now was the foreword to a hundred petals. If yes. we were to talk about the book, um, the the story of a hundred petals began at that moment. After about um, two years of um, rescue missions, you know, when it was it was a cycle, and and I think this is very familiar to a lot of parents. It's very familiar to people who wrestle with recovery. It's like, you know, you have a recovery moment, then you have a relapse, then you have a legal issue, then you have a recovery moment. Then you, it's kind of, it, and, and it depends on, it depends on the individual and the life experience, but it's very much like NASCAR. You just keep going around and around in circles. And with, but as a parent, the person watching the disaster before them, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to love them, encourage them, coach them, love them, support them. We're doing everything in our means. We're looking for things that answers and solutions. And it got to the point with every relapse, with every, um, you know, trip to jail or whatever, I felt more and more a failure as a dad. And so the, the, the story is, you know, there was one night, um, and, uh, it was Christmas and my TV and my son both went disappearing on the same night. And <laughs> again, you know, it's, it, it's a common story, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. And I, but I had that, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and, um, went out and sat on the porch and looked up at the sky. Like I always did when I had those moments and I'd say, you know, these little prayers to myself, it's like, and I said, would say, you know, God, wherever, wherever my son is, please take care of him. And then the next one I said, and could you help me get through this? Right. And the minute I said that for about the 50th time, I go, dude, you keep doing this. What are you going to do about it? Because there's what, there's what I can control and there's what I can't control. Right. right. And I came to the reality at that moment that I had lost control of my life. Yeah. 
Well, and, and it also falls back on one of those very common things that you hear in recovery, which is, uh, you know, people come into recovery and we see it all the time uh, where the person comes in, they get they get they get going on recovery, whatever. Um, but their sobriety is about two and a half weeks old. And all of a sudden I got to go home. I got to take care of this and I got to take care of this and I got to take care of this person. Right. My my girlfriend, my mom, my dad, whoever, there's somebody else always involved. And the 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 analogy is, is if you're in an airplane and you're dropping down and those oxygen masks hit, right? Mm. You're always supposed to put yours on first or else you can't take care of everybody else. That's it. It doesn't do any good to wrestle with somebody else while you're meanwhile slowly dying. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine. Do I don't have kids, so I, I, I can't even fathom that. But I do know what I put my parents through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was... There was there was plenty of it, yeah. You know, and and, and that's so that's really what happened to me is is that they and I got to that point and said okay you know take control of your life and I and I issued myself a couple of challenges. What does it look like when when you're in you know you're doing the things that you need to do? And first of all, it was like you know we talked about the fishing and we talk about you know cycling, which for me is meditative exercise, which is, certainly fishing is for you. Yes, and. When I start my day on the bike, when I start my day working out, I have a much better day because my, I framed the day energetically, you know, holistically, whatever word you want to use. And I said, you, you know, with this whole addiction thing, I'd gained weight. I wasn't working out. My my job, my relationship with people stunk. And I just said, you know, you got to get back to where you need to be in your life. You know, like you said, grab the oxygen mask and start right. start to live and breathe. And then the other thing that I said is maybe you need to – you keep telling your son that he's got to find – you know, find his recovery and he's got to embrace sobriety, but you have, you know, you have no idea what he's going through. So I, what I did was I challenged myself to ride my bike for an hour a day for a hundred days in a row. And the reason I did that was because I had no idea how I was going to do that, which is very similar to recovery because recovery is one day at a time. Right. Right. And where I, but I'm asking him to envision a life of recovery, not a day of recovery. And so what I thought is I'm going to walk a mile in his shoes. I'm going to walk a hundred days in his shoes. <laughs> And have to live this commitment that I have no idea how in the world I'm going to do it, knowing that it serves me, but it all, you know, but also serves as an experience. Right, right. I, 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 it's funny that you did a hundred um, in the recovery world. You know, everybody knows about the ninety meetings in ninety days. I wonder why it didn't. It wasn't ninety pedals or nine hundred pedals. <laughs> well, yeah, I have no idea. You know, the, I will tell you the thought. You went a little extra. <laughs> well, I guess that's what it was because the thought process was I did. You know, I said to myself thirty days. And I was like, oh, you know what? I could do thirty days. That's a piece of cake. Well, maybe then I need to do sixty. It's like sixty. No, that's not enough. And I guess ninety just didn't sound like a round enough yeah. number. So I went to a hundred. I said, you know, hundred. You know, that's kind of scary. How many is that? That's a third of a year. That's fourteen weeks. Yeah, let's go for that. You know, so that's what I did. Right. And you were, I mean, that was already your, 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 a little bit of your, one of your passions, right? Writing. Yes. You, you were already into that, but, but then you turned it into, you turned it into part of your purpose. It did. Well, because it was, it was a way to symbolically remind parents, um, of what it looks like when you take control of your life and make a, you know, do something, you know, it doesn't have to be exercise. It doesn't have to be fishing. We could, and so I just said, but every time I'm on a bike, I'm reminding somebody, there goes Dave on his bike. And then they remember the story and they remember the, the, the message behind the story is this is you got to do something for yourself every day or you're going to lose yourself. 
reminds me of a of a movie and I don't know which what it was or anything but the mom was always sitting on her couch knitting and like the kids would come through the living room in this in this tornado of just rah, chaos and everything and she would just sit there and knit she go okay have a good night you know and you're like all right you yeah. know but she was doing what she needed to do yeah and it's the same thing um Hundred pedals became a little bit. Did it? Did it? Did it become bigger than you thought it was going to become? <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, in some respects, I think that it was going to be something big, and so you know, I got into the grandiose idea. Um, but from a from a realistic point of view, when I really look at the lives and the influence and the people that write me still today and, and call me, yeah, I'm I'm surprised. Because you know, I was just I was just a dude on a journey. I was and I was looking to you know I was looking for how does Dave Cook survive? Right. You know I wasn't even into thrive yet. As how do I survive? How do I get through this? And um, in the end, uh, you know, yeah, you know, it started. I you know on those bike rides, I started making notes of like little sayings or little thoughts that I experienced on this meditative hour that I was on the bike. Then I started blogging, and then people would reach out and say, well, I don't know what you're doing, but the stuff you're writing is really deep. It's really inspirational. So I'm just riding my bike and going through my head the <laughs> journey that I'm on in my life. And so I was I was downplaying it. And, you know, I have a just a kind of a, like a side story. There's a woman in in um, uh, Michigan who now is, you know, I told you my mileage is down right now. She's riding like a crazy woman. And I said, you know, I'm looking at your mileage. You're like going nuts. She says, I owe it all to you. She said, you told me to get on my bike to get through some stuff. And I got on my bike. And she says, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Right. But what she did was she found this thing that was sure. that was an outlet for her struggles yep. and her tension and stuff. And that was really the message. And, you know, yeah, it grew. I'm, you know, I don't know. It was yeah. fun. It was fun. Good experience. Well, I mean, since then, I and, and I follow you on social media and stuff. And even after we didn't see each other or speak because of our our uh, our uh, uh, connection. You've gone across the country. Yes, How sir. many times? Well, I rode route. I rode all of Route 66 from Santa Monica to Chicago uh, six years ago. Um, and then I then when I got I wanted to I literally was planning going across the country, but I ran out of funding. So what I ended up doing is I went around Lake Michigan to the middle part of the state, and then I finished in front of my old home in in Detroit. Nice. Um, the the next year I rode my bike through. Um, Two hurricanes um, in the southeast uh, United States. I went from uh, Charleston to Atlanta to Nashville to New Orleans, and I got hur- Hurricane Irma and Harveyed on that trip. <laughs> I spent I spent one day in Tupelo, Mississippi, at the birthplace of Elvis Presley because it was raining so hard. I had no other choice but to find something to do than ride my bike. But. <laughs> You're not an Elvis fan. <laughs> well, I, went, I was curious, but after a while, it's just a house. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> shelter, maybe. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I've done, and I've done. Um, I did several iterations where I would, um, I would, wouldn't ride continuously across the country, but I would uh, drive, drive to a city, find somebody to ride a bike with, tell my story, and then. You know, they would introduce me to somebody. So I met a lot of people impromptu all around the country. How did, how did, so once again, not being a parent, how did things change between you and your son, who you, who you escorted out here, um, when, when you made that decision, when you said, look, this, this isn't my deal, 
did did it did it change his direction at all? I mean, when you let go that. Well, I think that was the, that was the key. I think that you know, it's it's funny. We learned so much about so many different things. You know, one of the things when I got off the bike after the the hundredth day, I walked up to my son and said, "You know, I can no longer be responsible for your recovery," which was kind of a think about what I just said. I know I thought I was responsible for helping him recover. That right. was my job right. as his dad, and I came at least came to that realization. Like you know. It's his life. It's my life. And I said, I, you know, your life and to find recovery is up to you. And so when I said, said that to him, he looked at me. He says, "Good." He says, "Good," because now I can take care of it. It was like I released. You know, he he recognized now that I have assigning responsibility, and I wanted to like punch him in the face. I'm thinking, like, <laughs> really? After three years of this aggravation, you finally decided that you may you at least recognize you own it. You know, so that was that was the beginning, and I think the 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 I came up with a, a great analogy um, in over time to help parents with this is that if you can envision a country road, an old country road, where there's two trails, two tracks, one for each side of the wheels, like a right, wagon, right, right. but in the middle there's grass. Yep, that's our job as a parent is to we we have we we if we want to walk alongside our children to coach them encourage them love them care for them advise them guide them great we are never allowed to cross over the grass side and walk in their path because when we do that we now are taking over their their life and they don't have control over it we're trying to control it for them right so i for me that's a was a great visual reminder for me is like yeah you know walking along my son is is yeah i want i don't i always want to know i'm there but i don't need to be in his lane right I need right to be there. along with the fact that if you tell any addict or alcoholic to go right, the automatic response is to go left. Yeah, all you got to do is stop telling them which way to go, and they actually turn the right way. It's, well, it's it was the correct way. I should. Well, say. One of the questions I would always ask when I gave talks with parents, I said, "You know, what's one of the first things you say to your kid? You know, when you're talking to them about where they are in their life?" I said, "I tell them that they need to get clean." I said, "Yeah." I said, "Do you think they don't already know that?" I said, you're just telling them something right. they already, so don't say it. Sure. You don't need to say that. Sure. You can say, I love you. I care for you. I'm worried yep. about you. How can I help you? Yep. Those are the things you can say to your child, but to admonish them for what they're not doing, they already know what they're not doing. What they're struggling with is, is getting there. And, and I think that a vast majority of people who are in addiction um, want to get clean. Mm-hmm. And they have the intention, because you hear it over and over and over. I've heard so many stories told where it's, I wanted with all my heart to stop doing what I was doing. And I couldn't because I just didn't know how. Mm -hmm. And I was trying, of course, trying to do it on their own, right? Not taking any guidance, not accepting any love, not, you know, any of those things that you just mentioned of a parent can do, they weren't open to that in the first place. So it's, so it's, it's. Listen, you got two different people doing two different things. And I think, and that's why I was curious as to how it changed for your son when you did your change. How did that morph over? You know what I mean? Um, I th- well, I think how it, the biggest way that it changed, um, because with that commitment, recognizing that I'm not, that I'm not, um, I'm not responsible for his recovery. But there are things that I am responsible for. Like I just said, I'm responsible for how I love my son. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I am responsible for how I communicate with him. I am responsible for, you know, how I respond, not react to the key words, how I respond to the issues of uh, the things that show up in his addiction, right? 
Um, and I'm responsible for those things. So I have to be really clear on what those were. Well, so what I started to realize was that, um, meeting my son where he is in his addiction was the greatest gift I could give to him because I don't understand what he's going through. I can, I can see from where I am what he's going through, but I don't see, like you said, I don't know how to get there. I want to get there, but I don't believe I can get there. Um, I know I need help, but I don't know how to ask for it, all those things. So if I create a place for my son to tell me what he's experiencing and experience love without judgment, encouragement without shame, what he does is he realizes that my, I can be safe telling my dad where I am. And in doing that, now he has a partner in finding his way as opposed to somebody criticizing him for being out of his, in, in the wrong place. Yeah. So I know you've, you've, since you started all this, um, you've, you've done a lot of talks. You've spoken to a lot of parents. Do they always, do they come up to you and go, what's your, what's, what is your one tip? What is your one, what's that go-to thing? What would you tell a parent when they're, going through this and at the very beginning. Do they do they come and do that in the first place? I mean, I don't know. Well, well they do, but you know, as you know, the same it's the same thing when you're dealing with with people, anybody who's trying to deal with change, right? They have a but. Yeah. Oh yeah. So they ask me what it is, but yeah, but my my situation's different. No, it's really not different. That's why you and I were <laughs> you and I were chuckling right at the beginning right. and, and it's not to be disrespectful, but the journey, everybody's journey in this arena yeah. is the same. Yeah. Okay, we have a nuance to our story. Yep. But let's not kid ourselves. It's the same. Yeah. You know, my you know when we say they ended up in jail, yep. everybody's child ends up in jail. Yeah. At least ninety percent of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's face it. You know, the, because your son went to jail twelve times and mine only went to six, doesn't mean your story's any different. <laughs> it means it's just twice as difficult, but it doesn't make it any different. Yeah. They're all. I mean, they're all progressive. It's yes. a matter of when that parent got involved. Right. Yes. So what I would say to them, and as I, as I really focused on the idea of what does unconditional love look like? And unconditional love, when you look at unconditional love, um, is, is very much, it's unconditional. There's no conditions to it. So you can't, you, so you, back to meeting your child where he is for who he is. So my son would come over on Saturday. This is like, you know, like a, uh, the best example I can give. My son would come over on Saturday morning wearing his Michigan football shirt, smelling like crap because he had been living in the street, high as a kite because he was using, but he wanted to see his parents. Now, it didn't make me happy to see my son high, but it made me thrilled to know my son was alive. Yeah. Yep. So I would open the door and I'd invite him in and he'd sit down because all he wanted to do was spend time with his mom and dad watching a football game on TV. And when the game was over, he got up and he left and he went back to his life. And people, you let him in when he was high? I said, sure, because I love my son and I'm happy as happy can be that he's there and I'll take it. Yeah. Because now what he gets, he gets to experience the love of his parents in his worst, darkest, deepest place. What better gift is that? Right. It's not about me. Now, did I get frustrated seeing him high and say stupid things? And the fact that he's sure it hurt me, tore me up. Sometimes I'd have to get up and go to the other room because he said something stupid. And rather than yell at him or get in an argument with him, I took my emotions to the other room so I could clear my head and come back and create, keep keeping a safe place for my son to be where he is loved. 
So if you want to do anything for your child, start with that mission of what does unconditional love look like in your relationship with your child and see where that takes you. You just, you just described <laughs> some moments that I had with my dad. <laughs> Really? And it just, I just went, oh, and, and I mean, from way back when I was, when I was pretty young. Um, yes. And so that just goes to show that's, that's crazy. Um, hindsight being 2020, you talked about that back in Detroit, this was going on right under your nose. When you look back at it, do you, do you kind of, I mean, we can't change the past. We can't go back and, and, and kick ourselves about it, right? That's just beating ourselves. But can you can you learn anything from? Can, did you ever think back and go, "Yeah, you know what? There was that time he did this, or that time he did this, where maybe I should have seen it a little bit." Um, and I got a follow up question to why I'm asking. Okay, this. well, it's good because um, I might want the follow up question first. Uh, <laughs> no. It, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I look back and, you know, I try not to, you know, do the Monday morning quarterback kind of thing. But I would say that the one thing when I look back on the whole experience, um, the one thing that I would say, and I have said to parents, this is kind of almost like rule number two or rule number three, but is um, when you think your child is, they are, and you're correct. Okay, I don't care what it is. Um, because we, we are built with, with a great intuitive mechanism. Yep. We know our children yep. better than anybody. So if we know that there's something out of the ordinary, yep. it is. Don't try to dismiss it or ignore it or gloss it over. Spend time in it and say, is it, and, and examine what can I do? Do I need to do anything or do I need to pay attention or make note of this? Whatever it is, but don't ignore it. Because, you know, I think that all the time that's really what happened is, is that I was dismissive of obvious things because I wanted to believe I was wrong. And I was afraid that if I was wrong or if I was wrong on confronting somebody or yeah. like, you know, doing something which I didn't want to confront. But if I was wrong in my judgment call, then what would that look like if I was wrong? Well, the truth of the matter is I was never wrong. I was always right. Or I shouldn't say right, but correct. I was always correct in my assumptions. So it's like. You know, operate in that in that space. You're giving your child a great gift when you recognize that something's off, and yep. have a conversation about the say. Just say I'm feeling like something's off, and and that's the follow up. Is well, maybe I didn't have a I didn't have an actual question, but the follow up is is the prevention part. Mm -hmm. We're missing out. Mm -hmm. We're missing out on the prevention part. Right. We got public service announcements that they might see on TV, but we all know what people do when commercials come on TV because people don't watch commercial TV anymore. Um, they go to their phones, they go to their iPods, they're go whatever. They're they're doing something else. Um, but I think that we can go on and on and on and on. And over the last, especially the last five years, the opioid epidemic, and then following into the fentanyl epidemic here is. Um, we're losing the battle. Mm -hmm. People are dying at record numbers. And the customers are still there. Yeah. The, 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 the people are not losing. Whoever's doing all this, and I know cartels and all that, whatever, whoever. They're not losing customers. So what are we doing on our part? You know what I mean? And, that, and, and it baffles me that. 
we I don't you don't see it out there and spoken about the prevention part exactly what you just said parents know they do they're the only ones that listen school principal he ain't gonna he ain't gonna do it they don't listen did you listen to your school counselor I did I didn't listen to my school did counselor. I don't know did I have a school counselor <laughs> I didn't I didn't even listen to the coolest teacher that I had right, right? I mean. He, he, you know, he was probably smoking weed back then. This was the seventies, you know, whatever. But I mean, who, who, who has that time and the place to really make a connection with the kids? Parents. Parents. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and this, you know, this is a careful, this, for me, this is a, um, I have to be careful how I phrase this because I don't want to make this an, you know, blanket indictment, you know, on, on parenting, but, um, when, when I when I realized what was going on with my son, you know, I came I came home from work early one day. He was in middle school, and he came walking in off the deck and had just smoked some weed. And I kind of like rolled with it because you know, hey, like you said, it was the seventies. Right, I, I did my fair share of weed. I probably did a fair <laughs> share for somebody else too. And um, you know. And I, so I just said, you know, everybody experiments. But then I started, you know, I, what I guess when now that in, back to the hindsight thing, what I have learned, what I've come to realize is, was that a, a, a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid doing weed is why are they doing weed? Okay. And that, that, would be, that would be the question I would ask parents to ask themselves. Why is my son medicating themselves? Right. And if they're medicating themselves um, – why are they medicating themselves and what do I need to know or do about it? Right. And when parents go, well, yeah, but I smoked weed and I say, well, yeah, fine. But why did you smoke weed? And for those who keep smoking it, why are you still smoking it? Okay. <laughs> I mean, so that's why I have to be careful how I phrase this. Sure. But, but, you know, the whole idea being is, is that it's not normal for 13, 14, 15 year old kids to be self-medicating. Correct. And, and I, I can, I'll have that argument with anybody at any time because it's not normal. Right. Repeat, not normal. Right. If it's going on with your child, that means there's something else going on that we need to be involved with. They're altering yep. themselves for a reason. Right. And, and it's not usually not a good, something that they're not comfortable with. So, well, I mean, obviously something needs to be spoken about, talked about, discussed. <laughs> Whatever, well, uh, put out in the. And I'll tell you, because you know, I don't want to come off as, as super dad, so I, I'll, I'll kind of I'll tell you a little corollary to that comment because um, my son found his recovery, and how he found his recovery is that he finally um, worked with a trauma therapist who talked to him about, you know, what he feels when he, you know, what his triggers are and what he experiences and what he feels, and as he worked through the things that triggered him, his core challenge for him and the reason he was he 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 sought you know, something to make him feel better was he felt like he could never be good enough. And the person that made him feel that had that feeling was his dad. And the reason that his dad made him feel like he would never be good enough is because the way I encouraged him was never with a compliment, but worth a, with a notion of how you could do something different or better. So he never heard the praise. He heard the push. Sure. And he, and so he just said, you know, finally just said, I, I'll never be good enough. Screw it. You know, so when he lost, you know, he, his grades dropped, he got, he didn't make the soccer team, et cetera, et cetera. He was trying to, how do I feel better about myself? Right. Started smoking weed, started experimenting with drugs. Yeah. 
And then when he when he hit the heroin high, it was like exactly what he was looking for, and the rest is history. So now I'm not going to take responsibility for his choices, and I'm not going to take you know I can take responsibility for how I parented, but I know I parented from a place of love, and my son would say that, but my words had an effect on him. I traumatized him right. with my words, unknowingly, unknowingly. But when I see my son walking through the door smoking pot, it's not normal. That's the time to engage as a loving parent yep. and say, okay, there's something going on that I need to know about. And how can I be the dad that he needs me to be in that moment? Yeah. Yeah. Um, once again, you just ran me through a couple things. And, and you know what? I mean, listen, my, my, uh, my parents were very supportive. They, I, I didn't do great in certain aspects of, I was t- terrible in math. And I remember being told, if you're trying as hard as you need to be trying, then we're okay with that. And yet something in my brain still said, they don't think I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. Something still did. And I don't know why. I mean, I'm, the whole neural, neuroscience and everything else, I don't go down that rabbit hole. But, um, I totally get it. You yeah. Know? And, and, and that's where I came from and that's where I started out. So, um, I, I understand, you know, the, um, I think another big part of this is parents who they, they know it, they have that intuitive thought, they know something is going on and they're lost about it. These are people who are bright, intelligent, successful people, but they're out there and they don't. They don't even know how to take that first step in talking to another parent, talking to maybe it's somebody at their kid's school. Um, so there's a there's that whole other side to it, right? They know something's wrong. They don't know how to handle it because it's a first, as most things are in parenting. There's always first, 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 first. But they don't. But they don't know. Um, there are so many good groups out there. Um, pal being one, mm-hmm. but I just know that there's a lot of different support groups out there for the people who they're not the addict. They're not the alcoholic. They're the one dealing with it. Um, even Alan, Alateen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many and, um, I wish we could go down a whole list yeah. of, of, have you, did you become exposed to a lot of those people and those types of groups when you were, when you were building on all this not only only on the on the you know the side of 100 pedals once i kind of like found my path you know because i was determined i was like every other parent i was determined i was going to figure this out i'm a stubborn lone wolf in certain ways you know kind of like you said you know did you talk to your principal heck no i I had all the answers did i trust my teacher no i had all the answers right i've lived my whole life being very independent of other people so when it came to Figuring this out, I was determined to figure it out. In fact, I was determined to figure it out to the point where I was figuring it out without bringing my wife along. <laughs> so that she wasn't being she wasn't being brought up to speed with the learning curve and the journey. What she was, so she's learning on her own, kind of in her own you know independent study, and that wasn't fair to her because I was really invested in this and I wasn't educating and coaching and nurturing with my wife on this thing. But um, you know the, the the challenge for parents, and you know, back to you know another thing that it, another recommendation I would give to moms and dads when you find yourself in that situation, there's two things that you need to recognize right away. The first one is recognize the recognize and acknowledge your fear that your child may be in trouble because we don't want our children to be in trouble. 
and I don't care what the trouble is, bad grades, kicked off a team, pregnant, right. you know, drugs, whatever, arrested. Yep. We don't want the world to find out because we believe that that's a reflection on the family and us as a parent. And that's why it's very important. It's We're not worried about what you look like as a parent or what we want to be encouraged you to do is how can you be the parent your child needs you to be. So it's not about you. It's about them. So recognize your fear and move past it. And because now that you've now that you've decided you can move past your fear and do what needs to be done for your son, then pick up the phone and call somebody. There's always, like you said, you Google you Google Google parenting um, of children who are addicted. There's a million places to go, and you'll find one. And you and and you know they some people will tell you they have the answers, and I understand that you know, but you find one that resonates with you, and. You know, the, what I would, for me, the ones that resonate most with me are the other ones that, um, just what I said is they, they start out with the idea of recognizing, meeting your children where they are for who they are. Um, the other thing that I did was I started reading books and, you know, there's a ton, there's a ton of great books out there. And I just, and I was not a reader, but I started reading books on addiction and I learned a lot, <laughs> you know, and I think that that was, those were the things, but, you know, the idea I was always, I think what, what worked for me was, is I was always very candid and open about the fact that I was struggling with addiction in my family. You know, people would say, I admire your courage. I admire your honesty. I admire your integrity. It's like, you know, I wasn't doing that. I just needed to find a way to say what I was experiencing and I didn't know where to go with it because I wasn't talking to anybody. So I talked to the social media. So it wasn't a brave fellow. It was just a stupid, lazy fellow, but, <laughs> but, um, there are plenty, there are plenty of resources once you move past your fear and start asking questions. <clears throat> do you, do you, I just had another one on top of my head, but, do you think it's ever too late, right? People go, what do you mean? How am I going to get past this? It's too late. It's not, you know, we're past the prevention part. We're past the explore, you know, the, the experimenting part. My kid is a heroin addict, a fentanyl fiend, I call them, fentanyl. It's it's a lost cause. It's never a lost it's, cause. Right. It's never right. a lost cause. And I had a... um I, it was a radio show I did on in Canada a couple of years ago, and that was not exactly answering your question, but it was something that I said that the one person flipped out and the other person got it. <laughs> and I was saying, you know, telling the story about letting my son in the house and all that stuff, and just being with my son wherever he is and all that stuff. And they said, "Well, yeah, but you know, if you're if you're allowing him to continue to use, he may die." And I said, "True. There's no guarantee. My son's four years into recovery. There's no guarantee he's still not going to overdose." Right. Okay. Right. So I celebrate every day I have with my son. What I want my son to know is that wherever he is, whatever he's doing, he's loved. And if he happens to die the next day, at least I, at least I know that I loved him on the last day I saw him. Right. And I would rather do that. Right. Than anything else related to giving up, shutting him down, locking him out, keeping away. Right. So that's that's my philosophy. It's never too late. As long as you, as long as I have breath, and as long as he have breath has breath, we're going to be interfacing. Yeah. How's your family doing today? We're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting journey. Yeah. You know, I would. Um, you know, I I, my, I don't want to tell too much of my son's story, but it's interesting. He's been you know he's been doing really well for four years. He does great. Um, but I I I. I would say that there are times where I feel like he's in safe recovery and not thriving recovery. And I wish he would, could do more, but you know, just like I said, but he's not doing what he was doing. Right. That's good enough. Yeah. 
it has to be that's good awesome enough. yeah you yeah. know i and every time once in a while the nice thing is is that there was a while where he was really living safe with no visions or dreams but it was like it was about the recovery staying off the drug and now every once in a while he'll share you know i've been thinking i probably need to and when i see somebody start to talk about the future Ooh. the big picture the yeah. long term i go okay here's a person who's moved out of the hole and is now trying to figure out how to move into their life and I'll take that all day long. Sure. You know, he hasn't done it yet, but the fact that he's having those conversations, that's a win. That's awesome. So That's awesome. I remember your son. He's he's a good kid. He did ask me if you'd remember him. He's, so oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I remember the hair. The Yeah. No, all right. I remember the oh, smile, well, man. I'm going to make sure to tell absolutely. him Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he it, it's – there aren't many people. I, I can't remember everybody. I run into guys all the time. They go, hey, man, remember back in 20-whatever? And I'm like, listen, <laughs> you know how many – do you know how many people I have seen, Henry? Yeah. But there are, but there are some. And because of, because of him having support, which we don't always see, we get guys all the time at Crossroads. You know, they don't have anybody. Yeah. They don't have anybody. They don't have family. Whether it's because they're from out of state or, you know, they're all gone or they've written them off or whatever. We have people who come through and they don't have anybody. So I think I tend to remember the ones whose parents showed up, multi, you know, often. And you did yeah. when he was there. Um, it just, I don't know, it just clicked something in my brain. So, and there are a couple that I know and that I remember and that are good today. And um, and I know their parents, and yeah. I'm like, okay, I just never thought of that. I don't know. Maybe it's a maybe it's a thing that you know you remember them because you get to see them doing that, yeah, as opposed to just going through the rigmarole and not investing sometimes, yeah, well, in, that, in their in their own. I know you have five questions, but I was going to say back to that thing about being you know just a reminder, another way of looking at this, you know, as parents. Um, Obviously, the goal is for our child to to find their sobriety. Yeah, you know, and there are parents that keep going on that NASCAR track, and they've been on it forever and ever and ever. I love that analogy. And it's a... like Dave, does it ever end? You know, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it ends tragically. Sometimes yep. it ends joyously. Sometimes yep. it never ends. And that's why I, you know, want to just keep reemphasizing the thing is is that um, it's not as much the outcome as the experience. Um, if the more you love your child, the more you love them well, you know, where they are, yeah. the more you have a chance. But even then, just giving them the love that they need, you know, sometimes that's all you can do. And that is enough. If you ask my son, that's basically what he, he said. He says, the life that I had when I was living on the street wasn't really that bad. But, which to me, living on the street is, you know, that bad, just the thought of saying that. But, right. But he said it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. But he said, I got to a place where I realized that I missed my family. He, so those Saturday mornings had enough of a dynamic shift sure. in his mind that he says, you know, I want that all the time. Right. And that's what he decided to go yeah. for. You know? Yeah. So. Well, there you go. Okay. Five questions. So once again, are they, I, are they true no, no, or no, false no, or multiple no, no, no. choice? So once again, I, I devise these not thinking about anyone in particular. And I was like, okay, so this could be somebody who came in, um, such as yourself, 
more on the parenting side, more on that kind of the, the family side. Um, I might get a rock and roll star in here who, who answers these 180 degrees the other way. So first one, do you have any tattoos? Yes. Where? On your arms. On my arms and one on my back. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna leave it all alone just with that. Um, what is the proudest moment of your life? Oh my gosh. That's a tough one. Yeah. The proudest moment of my life. Um, uh, yeah, I think the proudest moment of my life, I just thought about it, was uh, I did a joint podcast with my son on addiction. And somebody said, if you, um, as a son, had to give advice to a parent you know, about you know, your experiences and stuff like that, what would you tell them to do? And my son said, love the hell out of them. And I just thought that was so awesome that my son recognized how much I loved him. And he was high that day, and I didn't even know it. <laughs> well, he, he was there. But he was there, and he, he acknowledged that the love right. made a difference. Right. And it, it, it was. You know, the, 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 the co-hosts were laughing. So look at yeah. the look on your face. Well, I said, Scott, it just like you know, right. went right through my That's heart. That's awesome. Um, what is the most embarrassing thing you've ever said to someone? Oh, my gosh. Um, I learned a lesson that most men need to learn without saying it. <laughs> Never ask an overweight woman if she's pregnant. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right. Oh, my gosh. I'm thinking about the three people I have scheduled for the next three podcasts, and, and two of them are going to blush, and one of them is going to just go off. Uh, if you could disappear for two weeks, where would you go? Two weeks? I already did. Um, if I could go disappear for two weeks, completely disappear. Yeah. Um, at this point in time, any any remote island in the middle of somewhere, I don't care. You know, we'll say we'll say um, the Maldives. <laughs> nice. That's not a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> one wish. Jeannie says you got one wish. This is, oh man. <laughs> that I would be satisfied with who I would be more satisfied with who I am, where I am. The person I'm most unhappy with right now is me. Yeah. That's deep. That's a good one. Now I want to point out, I'm going to remember that because that's some, some really good. Well, stuff. you can remember it cause it's on tape. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have to listen to the podcast. Get a transcription <laughs> of it. I want to point out that uh, one swear word was used today. He just said it, hell, uh, just a couple minutes ago. One of the cleanest freaking shows we've done in a long time, because I think because Donna's not here, maybe. Uh, but she'll think that's funny, so it's okay. Um, but I, I really want to thank you. Um, it's great seeing you. And, and I think that it's so important that um, for the parents that are listening, for anyone out there listening who has a loved one, um, don't, don't ignore the elephant in the room. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I know that my parents, I remember my dad looking at me one day. We were, same thing, Saturday? No, actually, it was a Sunday. We were watching a football game. I was, I don't know how old. We lived in California. And he just looked at me and he said, you know what? Your mother found your stash. Found my little, my little weed container, right? And he said, you know, you really shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And I just remember just turning. I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. But that's really kind of the extent of it. Mm -hmm. 
we didn't go deep into as it got worse, as the disease progressed with me, especially with the drinking, um, the, the discussion didn't progress also. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, big, big challenge with that. It's, it's interesting. I think your father did a nice job of spinning that. Um, but, you know, the idea being is, is confronting. So if my son came over and I said, you know, you're high. Yeah. Okay. Of course, they're going to say no. And now we're in the debate whether he's high or right, not. Right, right. So it takes away from everything. It takes away from everything. So if you want to have the discussion, the discussion can't be confrontational. Correct. So the idea is we found, oh, yeah. we found your oh, stash. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and if he, he could have slipped in to say, you know, tell me, is there something I need to know? Right. Or, you know, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Create a space for you to talk about it. Yep. Now, if you choose not to talk about it, which you would. Yes. At least what he's done is he's created that space for you to talk about it. And if he leaves it there, you're like, you know, I probably could have talked to my dad. Right. Oh, I know he, I could. Have. Then if he does it again, he goes, yeah, maybe I should talk to my dad. <laughs> but if I go, if you said, you know, you're such a, like, well, I was going to swear again, but you're such an idiot. <laughs> you're an idiot. I said, find your stash. What, what are you thinking? Right. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to feel stupid. Yep. I'm going to like back off because now I'm being, being confronted. Yep. So yeah. that conversation, there's an art to the conversation as well. Yep. So what I what I was getting at is, you know, for the parents, for all you out there listening, um, please don't, you know, show that love, show that unconditional love. Do it. You follow your gut. It's like you said, it's always right. That's uh, we get taught that in recovery. As a matter of fact, our intuitive thoughts come back. And we and and as long as we follow those things, I think everybody has that. Everybody's born with that, and um, so uh, man, uh, don't let it go by, and don't let it turn into a regret. That's probably worst thing to deal with in the initial problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine, especially as a parent. So, um, hundred pedals still going strong. Kind of no. Kind of, kind of no. Yeah, I, I taking a back seat. Quite honestly, yeah, I let it. I stepped back. Um, you know, you asked me early on, it ended up where I wanted it to end up. It didn't. I got a little frustrated with it, and I was also feeling like I needed some recovery time for myself. Yeah. Um, because I was, you know, you know how it is. You know, the just the tur- the the chaos of other people's lives, and you know, I stepped back from it a couple of years ago. I turned over the nonprofit to another organization. I still get phone calls. I still, you know, give talks. I still go on bike rides and run into people, but it is not, um, it is certainly way on the back page of my daily activities at this point in time, which is okay. Yeah. Sure. I'm still there. Yeah. You're still out there. You're still, you, well, you showed up for this. Oh yeah, I, I think you sent me an email like 30 <laughs> seconds later, you got to reply. So that just shows you I'm, I'm, I'm there. Yes, absolutely. And, and we, and we appreciate it. Um, you know, one of these days, uh, we'll invite you to one of our little uh, free lunches or something to give you a little payback. But uh, um, it was great to have you here. I'm I'm happy to see you again. I'm glad your son is doing well and your family's doing well. And uh, I hope everybody uh, got something out of this today. Yeah, well, Crossroads has been a great gift in our life, so thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, a, pleasure, uh, it's a pleasure working for him. And... Uh, That'll do it. I think we did all right. Thanks for listening to Recovery On Air, the official podcast of Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation with your host, Greg Halverson. Join us next time as we continue our candid discussions about addiction and recovery. 
Listen 24-7 anytime to this or any of our shows online at StarWorldWideNetworks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.